welcome to the 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. We are finally off hiatus, and we're back with an episode on the Almeida Theatre's production of King Lear, which stars Jonathan Price and is directed by Michael Attenborough. The production was filmed over two nights, and it's now available to watch on digitaltheatre.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Craig Rattan in Toronto and Caitlin Merriman in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm your host, Alex Heaney, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of Seventh Row, an online publication which takes a multidisciplinary approach to film and theatre criticism. You can keep up with the 21st Folio on Twitter at 21st Folio, that's 2-1-S-T-F-O-L-I-O, or at our website at 21stfolio.com. You can also find Caitlin on Twitter at Caitlin Snark, Craig at C-Rut, and me at BWestCineAst. And now we're going to get started on the episode. We um, had some difficulties recording. We lost the very, very beginning of it, so we're kind of starting mid-conversation. Anyway, here we go. So I mean, a lot of a lot of the play, and especially Lear and his his daughters and his their issues with each other, is about the idea of duty and nature, um, and how uh, the two things are kind of melded together. And when you've got this like super unnatural relationship that's been set up between Lear and his daughters, just right off the bat, by you know basically full on like mouth kissing, pashing, as we would say here in the Antipodes, <laughs> uh, his daughters and just how, yeah, super inappropriate he is with them. Um, it's not like the, the state of nature is, is disrupted by Leah giving up his kingdom. It's that sort of suggests that it's already disrupted. And if we've got this, this already unnatural relationship that exists between all of them, I think for me, Cordelia's reaction and Goneril and Regan's reaction feels a little bit more real just because, yeah, Cordelia, maybe it feels like she's, she's a bit more distant than you'd expect because when she says, I love you according to my bond, she's not just saying the usual things that she's saying when, when she says that, like, you know, I'm your daughter. I love you completely and but that's you know that's my job that's my duty I'm your daughter she's saying I'm your daughter I love you that much and no more because you're creepy and inappropriate and I don't love you in that way whereas Goneril and Regan are just too kind of keen to stay in his good books so they're all oh I love you and they they're a bit less kind of obviously completely repulsed when he gets all inappropriate with them whereas I mean Leah doesn't even kiss Cordelia in that first scene but just the way he's holding her and the way she reacts to his touch is just it's so tense and uncomfortable so that's kind of what I took from it I don't know um if that's what was intended but uh just everything is more uncomfortable more complicated by this weird inappropriate thing they have yeah I think the other thing that's important is that you see he's he seems pretty sick in that scene. Like he has, he has to unbutton his shirt and he seems to be having some kind of problem with his heart. 
And so you get the sense that he's maybe dying and knows it, as opposed to he's only dying after his daughters turn him out. And that it's sort of the end of his life and he's figuring, well, I've only got a little bit of time. I'll go hang out with each of my daughters and I'm just setting things, setting things up in a way that doesn't seem quite as insane as like, you're still in your prime and you're dividing up your kingdom. Why are you doing this? This is crazy. I think also that the daughters, well, Regan and Goneril's husbands kind of take a back seat in this scene. Like they're, they're on stage and they're by the, by their wives, but they're not really foregrounded and their relationship doesn't seem to be very foregrounded. Um, so you don't get the same sense to me anyway, that, you know, of Cordelia's line about, you know, if they love, if they love you so much, why did they take husbands? Because their husbands don't seem to be a very strong presence, strongly linked to them in that scene. No, I completely agree with your point, Alex, that they really don't emerge as strong characters until well into the play. And so it, it takes a while longer. It, so at the beginning, it's very much a focus on the, the intimate, very intimate uh, family unit as opposed to any of the other characters who are all really shoved to the periphery. Uh, and the first you know, other strong character we really see is Kent, who obviously gets on Lear's bad side very quickly. Uh, how did you guys feel about that interaction? Yeah, it's, I don't know, I think it does, everything goes south so quickly in this play. And so I think it's it's hard sometimes. It's definitely might be one of the problems with the, just how quickly everything falls apart. And Kent and Lear is obviously the one of the biggest examples of that. I'm I was just super convinced by both the actors. So I it felt pretty reasonable. I mean, Lear was just being ridiculous in that whole scene. So Kent kind of losing his shit a little bit maybe made sense. But yeah, it's a difficult difficult thing to play I think what what about you Alex what do you reckon yeah I think it seemed to me that the way Kent was reacting at first is like he expected to be able to speak without Lear going crazy and everyone was kind of surprised by Lear's reaction to Kent so that seemed to have a piece with what else was going on I mean one of the things that that I was thinking about is like comparing the scene to um, the Sam Mendes production that was at the National Theater a couple of years ago with Simon Russell Beale and one of the things he did in that scene is the fool was present, which he's not in the text, but he had him on stage, just sort of silently watching and judging everything. And then what happened when Kent gets banished and leaves is he hugs Cordelia, which he did in this production, and also the fool. And there's, and so Mendeser has set those three up as sort of being Lear's support system, I guess. And like having a special relationship to one another, even though they're all treat end up treated badly, I guess, except for the fool by Lear. And so I thought it was interesting that he still had, you know, Kent and Cordelia having this kind of strong bond because she's the only one that he hugs before he leaves. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is this is one of my problems. One of the difficulties, I think, with the play is, I don't know, there are a lot of questions in Lear that I don't have good answers for in general about the about the play. And it's interesting how different productions deal with that. 
So, I mean, I guess I think there are a lot of things in Lear that don't really make sense to me, at least on their own. And it it's interesting to see how productions try and make sense of them. Um, one of them is why does Cordelia not say anything? Why won't she say she loves him? And I mean, we sort of touched on this a little bit, but I mean, in the Mendes production, what happened is that Regan had this flirtatious relationship with her father and it was very performative and Goneril was very buttoned up, but was also being very performative. And then you were very sympathetic with, with um, Cordelia because Cordelia was looking at these, you know, exaggerated displays of affection that were clearly not real and just saying, I'm not going to play this game. And so she very much came off as, you know, the only one with integrity, which I didn't necessarily feel in this production. I was kind of, I still don't really fully understand why she, well, I guess, I mean, I think Caitlin is right that it's the contrast between how it's Lear's behavior that makes it more so than the, her sister's. I mean, so that's one of the problems. And the other one is, why is Kent so goddamn loyal? And why does he just keep chasing after Lear no matter what Lear has done? And to some degree, that's even more difficult for me to understand in this production, because if Lear has been abusing his children, then why is Kent so keen on him no matter what he does to him? Like, at least what was done in the Sam Mendes production was Lear was losing his mind from the beginning and knew it. And they just basically were basing him as though he had Louis body dementia and he was losing his faculties and that kind of made him sympathetic. And then you could kind of understand how Kent would feel obligated to take care of him, that he was behaving badly because he was going nuts and even, and he was a tyrannical dictator. So that part didn't fully make sense why he had a loyal servant, but it made more sense emotionally, I guess, than it does to me in this one. That why, because Kent seems really quite lovely and compassionate in this one, and I'm not sure how Lear deserves that. From an early modern perspective, it makes perfect sense just thinking about how every every person has a position, has a place in the order of things, and a duty that, that is associated with that. And so Kent is much like Cordelia is meant to be the absolute epitome of the dutiful daughter who understands her place and understands her father's place. And Goneril and Regan are meant to be kind of the examples of the kind of unnatural daughters who don't know their duty. I think Kent is meant to be the epitome of the loyal servant. Uh, He serves the king and Lear is the king until he dies. And that's the way it goes. And it doesn't matter what he does or or how mad he goes, he's still the king. And so he's like this kind of stable, unmoving spot in the middle of this world that has just been turned upside down, mostly due to Lear and his because Lear, you know, is the one who goes against his duty more than anyone else. And he's the one who starts off this chain of events which turns everything upside down. The idea being, of course, in most productions it should be, because I think this is how the play is written, that Lear is already mad in the sense that he has lost his ability to fulfill his duty. And you can see that right from the moment he takes the crown off his head in order to divide the kingdoms up. So, yeah, I think that if you think of it from an early modern perspective and what what Kent is meant to be, a loyal servant to his king, then it makes a little bit more sense. 
Yeah, I hadn't thought of it from that perspective before, but uh, that does seem to resonate. And I, and I see what you're saying about Lear upturning the natural order and being really the person who sets the chaos in motion by dividing his kingdom and relinquishing his power early um, amongst his daughters and changing the plan midway when he doesn't feel like he's getting what he wants. And which is interesting because my first reaction on watching this production was of seeing a Lear who was perhaps a bit emotionally unstable, but still fit to rule. And perhaps, so I, I guess the way I originally saw it was that he... Uh, I mean, he he brings it on himself quite clearly, but that he it wasn't necessary for him at this time to to divide the kingdom. It was a, a choice he made that then backfired spectacularly. I don't know if I agree with that because it seems I'm mixed mixed on that because it does seem like he's quite sick in that first scene. So I'm not sure whether I think that that means that he's still doing it prematurely or if he is sort of trying to set things up because he knows he could die any day. Not that that means it's a good idea to divide his kingdom anyway, but yeah. Um, go ahead. And just just the, you know, I'm thinking again back to the whole basis of the English monarchy and and that the idea, you know, abdication is is still a big deal. Like in the 20th century, it's the idea of a king giving up his kingdom while he's still living is absurd. And so even if he if he were trying to set things up so that there was someone to succeed him, that is absolutely not the way that you go about it, um, especially not splitting up the kingdom. What I mean, what's interesting is, you know, when we next see Lear in Goneril's castle, he seems to be quite enjoying retirement. And having quite a quite a wonderful time and festivizing, and that's uh, preceded by the scene with Goneril uh, and her husband talking about how you know abhorrent he and all of his guests are behaving, and and seemingly you know actually quite put out by it. Uh, I mean, I've, other productions I've seen, it seems like the the fix is in for Lear from the very beginning that Goneril and Regan are harboring you know, long-seated vengeances that they're just waiting to carry out on Lear. And here, it seems, you know, to all appearances, that they are relatively quite loving daughters whose Lear's own behavior has tipped over the edge. Yeah, I think one thing that's similar the Sam Mendes production is Goneril, at least, is, you know, trying really hard and can't believe how horrible her father is being. And he's just completely taking advantage of her hospitality. And... Regan is sort of morally bankrupt from the beginning, and she sort of bankrupts Goneril. That, that's what happened in the Mendez production. Whereas I think in this one, they both start out seemingly okay, and then, you know, Goneril can't believe how bad her father is, and so she has, you know, sends word to Regan to say, you know, we have to deal with our father. He's being horrible. We can't let him get away with this. And in a way, they sort of start cheating him like a child. And Lear is has given away all of his power to his daughters and is acting as though he should still have it and is being very petulant about how, you know, Oh, I gave you all of this. You're so ungrateful. And it's like, well, you did give them all of this. So now you can't expect to have the power that you gave away. And I'm kind of wondering what you guys think about how 
they treat Lear like a child because it seems to me that the way that Goneril and Regan talk to each other and there's that scene after Cordelia leaves um, where they're talking about what they're going to do and how they're going to manage their father that on the one hand it seems very much like okay how do you manage your parent and on the other hand in some ways they're almost like parenting him like how are we going to deal with this burden that we now have and then there's a lot of imagery just in the way that the blocking happens where Lear gets infantilized just like his fool is sort of holding him up and there's a lot of people curled up in like fetal positions and being held by someone I think it's a lot of Lear getting held by Kent or by his fool yeah what do you guys think about Lear's sort of maturity versus childlikeness and how that progresses I mean I think the line from the fool really helps encapsulate it right you've made your daughters your thy mother and yeah, like Lear, I mean, clearly, I mean, clearly can't take care of himself, but I mean, he has a retinue of a hundred, right? He's grown accustomed to being cared for even as king. And now that he's left on his, lo- left on his own or, or removed himself from power, he's still, I wonder if, so for me, it strikes me maybe less that he's fully sort of become childlike than he just is has lost has lost his place and maybe is is almost disoriented which has its own childlike implications coming from it but most of all he just seems completely sort of shell-shocked and disoriented yeah something teenager-ish about the way he wants to have authority without responsibility like he wants (laughs) to be able to order people around and be treated like a king without actually having to do the business of a king. And this this whole idea of, of I, I think, though Regan, I think, was one of the weaker actors for me at the beginning, especially, which is a shame because I've seen Regan done so powerfully that you're actually like physically recoiling back from the stage because she's so goddamn terrifying. But the the idea of, of at least Goneril being kind of, actually okay she's fine she's maybe a little bit cold towards her father but she's trying her best and just being driven you know to the threshold by by Leah's behavior that feels way more like it's actually following the text than than sort of productions that seem to kind of make them both villainesses from the start yeah I think I think Leah he's he he's just tried to kind of yeah give away his kingdoms but rule them at the same time um in a in a kind of a smaller micro way that he he thinks that you can have the trappings of a king without the office of the king and the play and the other characters try to tell him nope that's that's not how it works you're either the king or you're not and that's what he comes up against and it was it was those scenes with his knights and when he starts reacting ridiculously like over the top to pretty much everything that happens was the moment that i realized that king leah is lucille bluth from arrested development <laughs> <laughs> yeah just like that that bit where there's there's parts where he just sort of says things and he's so hypocritical and i just think of that moment where lucille looks over at the boat full of gay people celebrating and she's like, they're so flamboyant and dramatic. It makes me want to set myself on fire. 
that's how I felt about Leah. <laughs> yeah, I think the production does a really good job of paralleling this with the Gloucester subplot because they really, I mean, it really stood out to me in a way that it hasn't when I've seen other productions of Lear that, you know, basically Edmund tells Gloucester that Edgar wants to steal all of his, everything that he can, that he has control over, basically. And Gloucester gets really upset, like, how dare my son do this while I'm still alive? And it's, it's the complete opposite what Edmund is accusing Edgar of, of what Lear gave away willingly. And that Lear doesn't seem to understand what it means and the way that Gloucester is like, oh, that is not okay. I don't like this son anymore. Yeah, and, and another thing that's interesting about the parallels between them, I, Alex, this is a point you made when we were chatting earlier, is that it's very much a fore, foregrounding of the uh, familial uh, nature of the relationships as opposed to a, an overtly political side of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you, you feel quite strongly for, uh, for Edgar and Edmund. You know, despite how how quickly Gloucester seems to become persuaded of the fact that Edgar is out to uh, out to get him, uh, which always is, I think, a challenge to to carry off successfully. But uh, regardless of that, all of a sudden you have these these very intense emotional family dramas playing out in both the case of Edmund and Gloucester and uh, Lear and his and his daughters, who all of a sudden aren't who he uh, thought they would be. So. Going back to Caitlin's point about everybody having sort of a place in society and having a role that they want, they have to play. I'm wondering how you guys read basically how they got rid of the fool in this, because he just does at some point, he just stops following Lear. And then that's, that's it. You know, at the point where he's supposed to, where he exits the text and there, they don't really give an explanation aside from he just doesn't follow this time. And I'm wondering, like, what do you think that means? Why doesn't he follow? And is that a satisfactory way of wrapping up his plot line? There are a couple of different ways I think that productions do this. And one that I saw, Royal Shakespeare Company production with Ian McKellen, which thankfully came to Auckland and was like the best day of my life when I was 17, being able to see it. And they hanged the fool on stage at the end of the first act, well, the end of the first half, and left him there for the... <laughs> For the remainder of the intermission, it was Ooh. it was really creepy. So it was a, it, basically an idea that a bunch of someone or other's men uh, hanged him. Of course, my poor, poor fool is hanged later on. But I like the idea. I mean, I think you can do that definitely. But from a from a narrative point of view, I like the idea that like the fool's job is to turn things on their head, to use uh, his position of of license, basically to take power structures and turn them upside down in order to kind of uh, show how they're working or not working in the case of this play. And so Leah, um, the fool spends the first half telling Leah, uh, dude, this is, this is not great. You've, you've lost it. Like you've forgotten your place, your duty. And uh, it's having all of these absurd run on effects. And then you have the storm and Leah's madness. And at that point, the fool becomes surplus to requirements we don't need him to show us that the world is upside down anymore because we can see it in the way that the characters are behaving and what's happening to them so i mean i think that this production was fairly ambiguous about what happens to the fool why he's not there anymore sort of in story but i liked the way he 
There were moments where he spoke to us, the audience, like the prophecy on stage and the way he said his last line, and I'll go to bed at noon. It just felt a little bit like he was saying those lines to us and sort of saying, well, you know what? I'm out because this is ridiculous. This is beyond saving. And like quick side note, I like the uh, theory that the Fool and Lear and Feste in Twelfth Night are the same person. And so he's just been off with King Lear and now he's going to pack up and head back to Illyria where it's, you know, less nuts. And then he gets there and, oh, no, it's still nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything to add. I think that's really uh, a pretty interesting reading. He didn't I, I didn't notice his absence overly. To me, it was just a continued demonstration of Lear's growing isolation as the play goes on as he becomes increasingly lost and mad yeah i mean i i guess i kind of agree with what caitlin said um the other leer that sort of looms largely in my mind obviously is the sam mendes one and they did a similar thing where they killed off the how they got rid of the fool was they killed him off but the way they killed him off was leer went so cray crazy crazy in the storm that he kills the fool himself like he doesn't know that he's doing it he doesn't realize that the fool is dead and that he killed him, but he kills the fool because he goes nuts. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I really liked it. One of the things I like about this production, though, is I feel like they gave a reasonable motivation for why the fool just disappears without really adding anything that's not in the text. Because it's not really in the text that he is dead. That's sort of an interesting interpretation, but it's not exactly in there and in this it was sort of as you kind of said caitlin it's at some point he was like well i just give up like what's the point there's nothing for me i can't do anything here there's nothing for me here and so you see lear going off with his posse and at some point like and you see this multiple times lear goes from one place with his posse to another place with his posse and at one point the fool is just like okay well i'm gonna stay on stage this time and i'm not gonna follow and I yeah. sort of thought that the way all everything was dark and how people sort of, I actually thought the fool was going to disappear into the trap door um, and that that was just going to be the explanation that he just like went down the trap door and then that was it. But the way they had all these dark spaces and the doors that when the fool kind of vanishes into the door, it's like, I don't even know what that means, whether that means he's just off to live another life or he's like, it seems like some kind of metaphorical vanishing that I don't necessarily know what it meant but it was kind of like okay yeah he just vanished into the door and so I don't expect to see him again quick note to say that I thought the actor who played the fool in this was fantastic I really like that he was a Geordie as well there's just something about that accent that is just inherently funnier than other accents so um, I thought he was very very good next topic is who do you sympathize with in this production do we sympathize with anyone I think I sympathize with everyone a little bit, actually, except maybe perhaps Cornwall, who's just terrible. And maybe Oswald, actually, as well. Um, I thought Oswald was interesting because sometimes they make him more comedic, more like kind of a buffoon than he is in this one. He's much, very much more serious and, and feels much more committed to the cause. But I mean, I think I think it works in this production. It's very dark. I mean, even the even the comedy was was very pointed. But yeah, I, th- I felt sorry for everyone. I mean, actually, I felt much less sorry for Leah than I usually do, even when he was at his lowest, um, even when he's, you know, 
there with Cordelia's body at the end, I still didn't feel as sorry for him as I usually did. Um, and I think that's just partly because of the way that they set up the relationship that he has with everyone and just how unpleasant Jonathan Price played him. And yeah, I don't think, yeah, apart from Cornwall, Cornwall's just terrible. I mean, that's, <laughs> he just kind of does terrible things and then dies and you're like, Oh, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I thought that uh, it was, it was good the way that they did that. Even if, yeah, Regan, Regan's characterization was, was a little iffy for me, I think. But, um, yeah, I mean, of course you always feel sorriest, I think probably for Gloucester because no one deserves that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that's interesting. Cause I think part of what's interesting about like who gets our sympathy is partly about who gets to talk to us, who gets to talk to the audience. Um, and there's quite a bit of talking to the audience, but it mostly comes from it's Edmund, King Lear. I guess Kent gets a bit and the fool gets a bit and Cordelia has a couple of asides. And although Edmund's asides are sort of evil, like in a Richard the third esque kind of way, I actually felt a lot of sympathy for him. I think partly because, because he gets to talk to us and because his father has such harsh words for him and his father is also so rash to like go from one son to the other. Like he just drops Edgar like, like that because Edmund said something and he <clears throat> talks about Edmund being, he's like, Oh, well it was fun making you, but your mother's a whore. And it was interesting that Edmund also had a different accent as like an outsider and more working class. And so I felt like that sort of really helped towards gaining our sympathy and it's sort of interesting because he's, you know, been wronged by his father in some way. And in some way, I mean, I wonder just the way that we can sympathize with him, whether that makes Goneril and Regan more sympathetic, because he sort of gets to voice things that they don't necessarily really get to voice. See, I would take it in an almost different direction because we see Edmund plotting so explicitly from the beginning and then you see him carry out his plans and deceive everyone else in the play, I felt less sympathy for him than I did for, say, Goneril, who we don't know her motivations as well, but she seems, you know, nice enough off the front and seems to genuinely love her father. And then uh, Lear is, you know, just behaves so poorly that she that she takes action. And and I would agree with, with Caitlin in that I, I did find Lear less sympathetic in this production than other ones that I've seen yeah, like to to me, to me, Edmund was just an out and out villain um, throughout it, and I, if anything, I felt more sympathy for for Edgar, and less so for for Gloucester until until the end. Gloucester builds, obviously, but I mean, off the front, you know, both Lear and Gloucester are the rash fathers who don't really know how to behave towards their children, and and ultimately, you know, get their both of them get their comeuppance and uh when that happens it ultimately seems that gloucester has less agency or is trying to trying to write things whereas lear is just too far gone to ultimately really win the audience back yeah i kind of felt like lear really fundamentally did not understand what he had done and what was going on until the final never 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 and really like he takes this pause between the like the fourth never and the fifth never and I felt like that was the first time that 
things started to sink in for him and he realized, you know, Cordelia is gone and I precipitated this and this is kind of my fault. And I think it's sad, but I didn't feel sad in like a, I'm not sure that I really sympathized with him. I like, I feel like I understood where he was coming from, but I'm not sure I, I didn't have, you know, like tears in my eyes or wasn't feeling really sorry for him. I was just like, yeah, it's kind of sad that you're so self-absorbed and out of it. This is the first time that you figure out what you've done and you've been behaving badly all along. And now it's hitting you once everybody else is, once you've brought everybody else down with you. And even the way he dies is he's just like a sick old man. And so he eventually dies. And it sort of makes it as though he had, he couldn't just go quietly. He had to bring everybody down with him. I did, I did tear up quite a bit at the end, but I don't know if that's just because that happens every single time I like watch or hear the last, the last couple of minutes of, uh, of this play. Even while listening to No Holds Barred when they were, <laughs> when they did a everyday shakes and I was just like, oh, yeah, I couldn't. I just, I was gone. Yeah. It, it's that sadness without sympathy. I definitely feel that, that it's just, everything's terrible and it has been the whole play, but now it's just gone beyond the point where anyone could conceivably fix it. And, uh, it just that I thought, um, the actor who played Edgar was very strong in that, uh, delivering those last lines in a way that really made me feel them. And, um, having the light, um, focus in on Lear and Cordelia and then kind of just finally go off and you can just see a glimpse of Leah's white kind of gown. I thought that was very, very well done and and sort of uh, focusing in that emotion right in the last scene. But it's just, Leah is, is pretty impossible to feel sorry for. I think beyond just an initial kind of no one should be running around in a storm because it's not a good idea. Yeah, if anything, the tragedy at the end is really, it's Cordelia. And any sympathy you feel for Lear is for his loss of Cordelia, the one thing he used to love. And, you know, that's that's almost the real tragedy here. She's the she's the most innocent of the of the victims, arguably. And, and Kent, too, I think, because there's certainly the implication with Kent's last lines that he's going to go and fall on a sword. And uh, it's like they've got these sort of two characters who are the two good ones, you know, the two who've kind of acted without too much regard for their own interests the whole time. And they're, I mean, apart from Edgar, but they're, they're going to be gone. And I think, I think that's the reason why we get Cordelia's death on stage versus we don't see Goneril and Regan's deaths. Cause it's kind of like, eh, whatever. They're, they're beyond help. Just I'm glad they're stage. dead. Yeah. And, um, and to sort of know that after the curtain goes down, that Kent's going to go off and die as well. It's just, it's so full of despair and without hope. And it kind of, in moments like this, it makes you realize why they changed the ending for so long. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm wondering what you think about what happens at the end. Cause I think one of the things that I heard Sam Mendes say in one of, in an interview about his production is that one of the problems he has with Lear is, that Lear sort of gets what he wants in the end, and that doesn't that seems to be kind of counterintuitive to him actually learning his lesson. Like basically what he wants is he wants to be holed up in a room with Cordelia forever. And then that's what he gets. And especially in this production, it was like Cordelia left. She married a pretty nice guy. And like, why is she coming back to, you know, hug and absolve her father? Like, that's what a shitty ending for her. And I mean, our pal Jeremy on um 
who was on our Coriolanus episode. I mean, one of the things that he said before is that Goneril and Regan are the are the, are the heroes of the play because they literally smashed the patriarchy. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he said it somewhat facetiously, but also it's kind of true. And in this production especially, it's kind of like, you know, there's something quite cathartic about them smashing the patriarchy because Lear is so awful that then it seems like, why does Cordelia get this shitty end of the stick? Yeah, that was... The, her coming back and, and helping him did feel less authentic, but I think I just could keep going back to the sort of early modern ideas about Judy and, and he, he's her father and, and he should be treated better than this, no matter what, what he does or, you know, who he is beyond that. Um, yeah. So I just, that, that always just pops back up into my mind, but I'm not sure whether the, like if you were sitting and watching it without an understanding of early modern ideas of, nature and duty um whether you'd get that and what's also interesting at the end is i mean the you're right it's it's pretty nihilistic in terms of the the personal lives and relationships but from an arch political level all of a sudden the country is reunified under under one crown so in some ways it's that it took all this tragedy and chaos and mayhem to write the the large-scale world it's like very like Hamlet in the sense that the kingdom then became sick and the only way to fix it was to mm-hmm. kill everybody off. But the difference being here is that it's all like you can kind of blame Lear and Gloucester for everything to some degree, especially in this production, I think, because Goneril and Regan don't seem to start off as sociopaths and any degree to which they are, you can to some degree blame it on, you know, childhood abuse potentially. And so Lear is really the architect of his own downfall and the architect of the down, you know, the downfall of his kingdom, which are kind of seen as one of the same in this because it's much more focused on the family drama than it is on the politics. Yeah. I mean, Hey, this could be another production where they did the ruins on the stage thing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God it wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I read one review that was complaining about the little green plant that pops up after, I think it happens after the gouging scene, right? The eye yeah, gouging the, scene. The, as um, like, the, the reviewer was complaining that it was too on the noses. But there's still hope! Even though everything is bad, there is still hope! Plants are still growing! <laughs> yeah, wasn't that, I think, I thought that front was right at the end of Act 1, right after the storm. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. And, and, then, I think, and then I think it cut the intermission. But you're right, it was the exact same notion. And then they, I, I mean, that that's kind of, I mean, if we want to talk about maybe lighting and staging now, that's one of the things that I did kind of like, as, I mean, Kayla mentioned it earlier, that it's like a really dark production. And I think like the harsh, austere, like stone walls help lend to that. The grates that occasionally have a lighted pattern, usually very, very dark and dire. And the first time the set's fully lit is the opening of uh, Act Two when it's wide open and Edgar Poor Tom climbs out of the hole after the storm and everything looks you know fresh and optimistic and that there's actually maybe hope for uh, for this new world after the, the cleansing of the storm and you know pretty quickly we find out that's not the case but uh, it was a nice sort of uh, breath in the tone before descending back into the intensity of the the rest of the play and there could be something there about the fact that the um if we're if we're reading the green plant thing as hope 
for the future, that it comes up out of the ground and so does Edgar, that there's sort of a parallel there. Um, because he's, of course, the the hope. He's the only relatively, and I say that like quite strongly, uh, like sane person <laughs> left who could uh, who could look after things. Yeah, I like that reading. I think it's that Edgar is kind of a Malcolm character in this production because the first time we see him, he's with a prostitute. So there's this sort of implication of you know lechery, but then also at the same time, he ends up being the sort of one true hope that the only one who's you know kind and loves his father and especially the how quickly his father turns on him after you know disliking Edmund so much and deciding that Edmund is you know his favorite son after discarding Edmund for years one assumes because Edmund doesn't have the same accent as the rest of them in this to me anyway Edgar's poor Tom seems much more constructed because you see that scene where the guards I guess are going after him and he immediately disguises himself and starts crying out about poor Tom. And so that seems much more constructed as opposed to I've gone nuts and have really, and really think I'm poor Tom. I mean, it gets a little confusing in the middle. Is he now, is he really poor Tom or is he not poor Tom? Does he know he's still Edgar? But yeah, just the idea that whether he's how pure he is, is sort of called into question, I guess from the minute we meet him. And I think, this production also has sort of a wicked sense of humor that you're talking about how it's dark and it is, but it also, I mean, when Edgar encounters Lear and Lear insists, you know, Oh, did you give everything you have to your daughters? And Kent is like, he doesn't have any daughters. And then Lear is, says, you know, no, it has to be his daughters. It must be his daughters. Yeah. Only daughters could do this. You know, <laughs> it's both. It, I mean, I found it really funny, but it's, it's sad, not in the way that I felt super, not that I felt badly for Lear, but it's just kind of sad that that's really what he thinks that he can't see beyond his own life at all. Like he's completely incapable of empathy that he can just jumps to the conclusion that it's, it must have been his daughters because that's what just happened to him. Yeah. And his sort of journey through the storm and his experience with Tom and Kent as the kind of servant dude to an extent as well. He he learns a little bit about the difference between his experience of the world and others. Like there's the whole poor naked wretches speech where I thought Jonathan Price was it was one of the best moments that he had in the play. And just, you know, where Lear has a moment where he thinks, you know, oh, I've taken too little care of this. Like this is this is not a way that human beings should be treated ever, no matter whether they're a king or not which is sort of, I think, part of Leah's arc of kind of having to go through this incredibly scary, awful experience on the heath and coming out the other side with a little bit more, perhaps a little bit more knowledge of the world, a little bit more self-knowledge too. Wow. But yeah, it's the, so much of the humor in this is like funny, but also intensely uncomfortable. Like when he's talking in the the mad scene where he's got the crown of leaves on his head and he does the bit where he's talking about how terrible women are from the waist down. Gee, thanks Lear. <laughs> and he's like, he starts fingering the air and it's like hilarious, but also just horrifically uncomfortable. And especially considering he's talking about his daughters and with all of that kind of background that we've got on how inappropriate it is with them. 
And then he, he he says, you know, Gloucester says, oh, I'll, you know, shake my hand. And he says, oh, I better wipe it first. It's just, <laughs> it was, oh, my God. I just sat there and kind of went, oh, my God. Because <laughs> very uncomfortable, but also funny in a way that you sort of laugh and then feel bad for laughing. Yeah, it's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I thought that, that Jonathan Price did a really good job of sort of playing the humor, even as it's horrifying. For me, a lot of the, a lot of the humor comes from the almost deadpan nature of of the madness that it's not over the top. It's not uh, it, it's just, you know, he's utterly convinced of this other reality. And I mean, the, the storm is sort of the epitome of that and the mock trial of uh, of his daughters where he's he's just fully in, he, he's the one who's who's sort of fully encapsulated and uh, Kent is trying to pull him back and even the fool is you know gent- gently mocking but is is still sort of a touchstone of reality and poor Tom is is almost pulling him in the other direction despite the fact that I mean Edgar is you know I, I think still quite sane was my reading of it but is is just you know playing along and 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 yeah, and, and in in those moments where Lear is just completely lost, you're you're laughing, but there's there is sort of that that twinge of uh, of both discomfort, but also empathy for his for his situation. Yeah, that's also thanks to the fool too, and the fool's deadpanning, like mm-hmm. where there's where Lear picks up the stool and starts banging it like like a judge's gavel, and the fool says, you know, oh, I thought it was a stool sorry i thought uh, you know he he completely takes down his trial and it's funny and it's also kind of like a kindness and also kind of mean all at once like on the one hand the fool is saying you know this isn't real and on the other hand he's sort of being funny and he's also you know giving like he won't just play along with lear's game the way everybody else is trying to play along, which is, you know, isn't that Lear's whole life problem that people would give him what he wants constantly. And now he put himself in a position where he gave away the power to force everybody to give him what he wants. And now he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was really very impressed with the way um, Price did Lear's madness agreed with, with you guys. It, It wasn't that he was acting any differently to the way he was before it's just mm-hmm. he's he's reacting to things that we don't see and we don't understand necessarily so like yeah there's i mean you can i think it, there's definitely a danger of going way too far with the madness with leah because yeah it's just his perception of the world and uh has altered but he's still reacting the same way that he would in the earlier scenes like the the very decisive ruler right someone who's used to being listened to authoritatively and saying no you didn't treat me appropriately like speak again or uh nope nope that's uh that's definitely my daughter that's uh the, no, this man's a philosopher we're gonna listen <laughs> to him yeah i think that it's a that's a really good point caitlin just about i think this production is very reactive that it has a lot fewer ideas about this is what the state is like, and this is what Lear is like, and therefore this is what his daughters are like. And everything we sort of learn seems to be in reaction to everything else that's happened, whether that's for better or worse. But I think, you know, that Goneril and Regan are very much reacting to their father being unreasonable. And I feel like you really get a lot of that, you're a hundred nights, this is crazy, you're a hundred nights, I tried, but you're a hundred nights. And then that precipitates their next action. And 
the poor Tom thing, you actually get to see the guards coming after him. And so he goes, okay, I guess I better be poor Tom. And you see Gloucester having this insane fast reaction to dump the son he likes and pick up the son he doesn't like. And just everything seems to be reactions. Everybody's behavior seems to be reacting to what's going on in the moment as opposed to some almost as though like it could have happened to anyone. It's not just that these are more horrible people. Yeah, their motivations are maybe easier to understand for the most part, which, I mean, I know earlier we were talking about how some of the motivations sometimes seem rash and unbelievable, but I think you're right. Compared to other productions, this one does seem much more organic in the way the characters evolve. We can understand the decisions they're making. That's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com.